0: This is Market Pulse by Faster Forward at Northern Trust Asset Servicing, the podcast where experts share their insights on current trends in the markets and the financial landscape. My name is Mark Mallett, Head of Platform Strategy and Marketing for Northern Trust Asset Servicing, and today I'm joined by Grant Johnsey, Head of Capital Markets Client Solutions at Northern Trust Asset Servicing. Grant, thanks for joining us today. Really excited to have you. Uh, Looking forward to a discussion on market trends and what we're seeing at the beginning of 2024. Today I'd really like to discuss what you're seeing in global markets um, and then touch on some regional trends and maybe get your thoughts on certain investment strategies, maybe investment styles and how they're being
1: impacted. So welcome. Thanks, Mark. Happy New Year to everybody. A lot of exciting trends to start the year. Obviously, we're seeing fresh highs in the US market. So we've got some good momentum. And that's really where I want to start today is on sentiment. So in the capital markets area, we're really focused in on liquidity, near term and intermediate term. And market sentiment is really important on that because ultimately in the short term markets are voting machines. So right now as we enter 2024, we're seeing a lot of bullish sentiment. We're seeing uh, across the, the board uh, general inflows into certainly bonds and money market funds. And we've uh, seen some really strong flows in the equities to close out the year. The first couple of weeks in January, we saw actually money's moving out of equities. That that reversed last week, so we're still seeing pretty good action in the equity markets. the The general trend and theme this year is one of very uh, strong bullishness, and that contrasts to last year, where last year when we started out in 2023. A lot of a lot of people are very bearish. We had a really bad 2022, uh, both in the equity and bond market. So what we're seeing this year is that ultimately price, you know, does have a big impact on sentiment had nice price action during the entirety of 2023 and a really strong uh, market uh, in, the, in the fourth quarter. Strong breadth of market, which was also a good sign uh, for the equity market where you, we have seen uh, you know, the, the market leading uh, mag seven that have really driven the day. So these are the big seven stocks everybody talks about, the Teslas and, and, and Apples, Metas, uh, Googles, et cetera. So those are those are the big stocks that have been driving the market, and then uh, towards the last end of last year, we saw a good breadth uh, around that. That trade is very crowded right now. The the long Mag Seven is a very crowded trade right now. It's probably the most crowded. The good news there, though, is that it's a crowded trade because the earnings expectations are strong. Uh, this contrasts a lot to what we saw in the '70s with the Nifty Fifty. Sometimes that gets compared. And really there's not great comparison there. The Nifty 50 uh, results were just a, a multiple move. They were really just price, it, the earnings weren't there. In fact, if you look at some of the Nifty 50 stocks, I mean, one of them was a sewing company that literally put out patterns that people could sew against and still around today, it was worth less than $100 million. So this is different. These MAG7 are going to uh, be strong performing stocks from an earnings uh, standpoint. Question is, are they overvalued or not? And certainly it's a very crowded trade. A couple of real quick uh, uh, things to look at, that people can do this at at home. If you look at the sentiment, it's driven in the U.S. equity markets, uh, by and large by retail and household investors. In the U.S. equity markets, about half of the ownership of the U.S. stock market is individuals, about 39% direct ownership by households, another 13 to 15% in active mutual funds. So the, the retail investors do have a outsized impact on the equity markets in the U.S. They are, by and large, bullish, not quite as bullish as we've seen. And one way that listeners can actually watch this unfold live is going to the American Association of Institutional Investors, AAII, and they do have a, a bull bear survey, sentiment survey they publish weekly. So you can actually see where this is. It's not as high as it was. The bullish sentiment not as high as it once was, but still very high. The other thing that I would point to people they can also look at at home are the market leaders. So we tend to see certain sectors or industries that will lead uh, both uh, on the way up and the way down. Um, Those would be examples of uh, industrials. So that would be uh, the ETF XLI. Uh, Home builders, that's HXB, semis, which is SMH, and then actually broker-dealers, which is XBD. Those are the ETF tickers that you can follow this. All four of those are are above their 2021 and 22 highs. Uh, which is, again, a a good bullish sign for the market, at least in the short term. The one concern I've got uh, right now is on the breadth of the market is starting to narrow. Um, So we're not seeing quite the same breadth, which is healthy for the market. The equal weight S&P 500, for example, has been underperforming recently. The other more concerning trend is insider trading ratio right now is very high. The sells to buys insider trading uh, is is at uh, fairly high levels right now. So there are some bearish signs but nothing right now that that appears to be a, a problem in the market. And certainly I've seen strong liquidity in the equity markets this year too. So great. Yeah, that's a lot on on the equity side. Uh, what are you seeing from a fixed income perspective? Strong buying still in the fixed income space. So We're still seeing a lot of buying into bond funds. We had a heck of a rally in the fourth quarter. The fourth quarter rally in the U.S. Ag Index was probably the best quarter performance I've certainly seen in years perhaps ever but very strong performance it was up about seven percent in the fourth quarter through all the buying that happened we're still seeing people add to bond positions we're also seeing investors go a little bit further out in the curve so we're seeing some uh some a little bit more duration uh that's there so as people start to position themselves for the potential of interest rate cuts uh so so good signs uh spreads right now are very tight both for credit uh, high for institutional uh, grade or investment grade, as well as for high yield. Spreads are, are relatively tight, uh, both uh, relative and a historical basis. So those are, are, are good signs. I think the concern is that uh, the market doesn't have a really good sense of the direction of interest rates. So we've talked about this in prior podcasts. There is a quite a wide dispersion of of projections as to where interest rates are going to go in the interim. And we've also seen continual fade of the FOMC cutting rates. So the first uh, sign that the futures market believed that the Fed was going to start cutting interest rates was actually July of 2023, then August, then November, then I saw possible December or January. At the end of the last year, there was a strong sentiment in the futures market that the Fed was going to cut in March. That's now fading. So it looks like the the cuts um, uh, to the Fed funds might not happen till the second half of next year, which is ultimately what our economists have been saying here at Northern Trust. So your your thoughts of uh, higher for longer seem to be holding true. Yeah, and ultimately at the end of the day, even if the Fed does cut some, right, even if they cut down to two, three, four percent level, the Fed funds, which is probably not imminent, it still you know could set up for uh, rates much longer, much higher than we saw. Uh, over the 15 years after the, uh, uh, the financial crisis when we essentially held rates at zero. So even if Fed rates come down still, we're probably going to see still moderate rates um, prevail as, to, as opposed to going back to the ultra low environment.
0: So Grant, that's how sort of markets have, have performed to start the year. What trends are you following that are impacting uh, that performance?
1: There, there are, and a lot of investors don't pay attention to this because they, t- they go on for such a long period of time There are super cycle trends. So we have been for roughly the last 10 to 15 years in an environment where large cap has significantly outperformed small cap. Growth over value and US stocks over non-US. So we've seen that permeate in the markets uh, for over a decade now. Um, There are signs that is starting to, to change a bit. We saw some really good performance from small caps in the fourth quarter. Um, but even into 2024, we're not seeing the end, of the end of that super cycle. So that's something that I keep an eye on that will eventually revert. It always does. Those cycles last a lot longer. If you ask the average person how long those cycles are, they'll probably say a couple of years. The reality of it is it's probably closer to a decade. Actually, there's a piece from Fidelity that came out where they, they actually say that those are 30-year peak to trough, back to peak cycles. So 15 where, where some you know, large cap might be favored versus small cap. And that has a huge impact as to which strategies are going to work during that time period. So that's an area that I would encourage people to continue to look at. When those do shift, you're into another secular period where the opposite uh, would work. And if you look at where we are now, let's take the U.S. market. The U.S. market now is 63%. The U.S. stock market is 63% of global stock market capitalization. That's tied for the highest level ever, at least in the last, uh, call it 60 years it actually is a percentage of developed market stocks. The US is 70%, which is the highest ever. So that's kind of how the, those trends really build. You can really see they have a big impact as to how valuations uh, ultimately uh, result in the market.
0: And Grant, just to take a step back a little bit, um, if you can discuss the impacts of those trends on global markets, like how are you seeing those impact EMEA and APAC?
1: It's really fascinating because a lot of investors have not been focused at all on the equity markets outside the US. And I don't just mean uh, investors in the US. Um, the, the, the problem is since the global financial crisis, you had relatively cheap sources of capital and growth stocks have been in. And for, uh, for the majority of that period, the growth stocks have been US-based stocks. Uh, and they've been large cap, mega cap stocks so those trends have all been somewhat you know reinforcing of one another where large cap growth and us uh based stocks have done better over the last 10 to 15 years there are some exceptional values in europe right now in particular Uh, the european market the uk market france germany uh, are both historically and relatively cheap the dividends are in those markets are also very rich i think uh footsie if you just buy a straight index is around a four percent dividend yield right now 3.5% 3.5% on the euro stocks, rough numbers, but there's not much interest at all, despite that right now. Um, and it's interesting to me that I see most of the, the the investors that I work with are still going into bonds. They're paying 4% in Treasuries instead of going down the dividend route. So they, they it's not a popular place right now to to put money. Um, but it seems to be again, you know, they're historically cheap, and we've seen some money trick back up into Japan. So that's another trade that's starting to get crowded. Japan the equity market is actually nearing its all time highs as, as we record this podcast. So that's where I think you're starting to potentially see some of these super cycles uh, start to adjust. The other thing that's really interesting um, that plays out from the super cycle market is that emerging market is is being increasingly not looked at as a separate asset class. Where a lot of investors right now are starting to think about globally is on small caps. Small caps outside the US are very different than the small caps in the US. So in the US, we, we use the Russell 2000 as probably the most common benchmark for small caps. About 33% of the Russell 2000 doesn't make any money, loses money. And the debt ratios of these companies are much higher. And it ultimately, at the end of the day, a lot of these companies are, you know, are not the strongest in, in their respective markets. You go outside the US, you look at international small caps, You'll actually find that the ROE in these companies is 50% higher than that of the same uh, you know, capitalization in the US, that their debt ratios are lower. And we're not talking about companies that are really esoteric. They, they've got a, a, usually some mode around them, they're performing very well. But these are companies that am, American investors would actually know. A good example is Topo Chico, which is actually uh, brought into the US by a, a small cap Mexican company that's the bottler under Coca-Cola licensing in, in uh, all of Texas and most of Oklahoma. Um, another example is Haichu. So any fans listening in that are Chicago Cubs or St. Louis Cardinals, Haichu uh, is one of their sponsors. It's a Japanese small cap. So, there is some value out there that we're starting to see people think about in the, uh, in the small cap space. Um, and I think that's another potential trend that might emerge in the, in the next couple of years.
0: So, Grant, talking small caps makes me think a little bit about emerging markets. Can you
1: elaborate a bit on, on trends you're seeing in that space? As I mentioned before, there's a, there's a growing number of investors that I have seen that are not looking at emerging markets as an asset class anymore. And there's a few different arguments as to why. One of them is country exposure matters. So that's a big one. If you look at what's happened in China and the Chinese stock market, there's been massive outflows, massive underperformance, and it still represents around 25% of the emerging market index. So if you buy into emerging markets, that's a big part of your allocation, and a lot of investors don't want that exposure. If you also look at what emerging markets represent, it's a basket of countries that some people would argue aren't all necessarily emerging or don't represent great growth potential. Uh, A lot of the countries, South Korea is probably the most obvious one, South Korea has a a GDP per capita higher than that of many developed markets, including Spain, Portugal, I think they're kind of in line with Italy. So why are they not classified as as a developed market and others are, um, is somewhat debatable. And then if you actually look at the mix of countries in there, the largest uh, component of an individual country of the emerging market index is, is Taiwan Semi followed by Samsung, followed by Tencent. And so these are multinational, global, mega large cap stocks, many of which derive uh, a large percentage if not the majority from West, from you know, the Western markets. Why do people go in emerging market? They go into either diversify away or, or because there's some sort of alpha they're able to pick up through less efficient markets. And that's not necessarily the truth. That's where I'm starting to see more folks look at the non-U.S. markets or the global markets outside of their own domicile, or their home market or region, is, all right, what's my large cap strategy, what's my small cap, and focus less on emerging market versus developed market for those reasons. Kinda.
0: Uh, Kurt, you mentioned China um, and the struggles that their stock market um, is having. Can you walk us through what's going on there?
1: Two big headwinds in China right now, and I'm oversimplifying this. You could spend an entire podcast just on this, but there's two, I'd say broad headwinds in China. The first is where they are in their economic development. So what typically tends to happen when a country's been industrializing and growing their economy is they end up with this period of, of accelerated growth as they industrialize and they grow. And I've seen that period kind of be right around 40 years. So if you look at where China started to really let their market uh, open up, that started around 1982, uh, what they called the uh, birdcage economy, which is where they decided they'll let the market economy have some latitude, but they'll put a, a nice cage around that so it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, you know, get, get away from the control of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, That started in 1982, and we started to see the headwinds of that 40-year period in 2022. What tends to happen through these cycles is you end up with a a, a bubble at home as you overinvest. That certainly happened in China and the real estate market, and you also end up with the markets that you're exporting to that have driven that growth either get full of buying your stuff or start to push away from it. So we saw this trend in the US between roughly 1890 and 1930. Again, massive growth in the US in the 1890s after a couple of really bad depressions following the Civil War. That's when our economy really, really industrialized and grew. Our, our market we were exporting to was Europe. By the 20s, we had a big bubble at home and the European market was not buying nearly as much. And of course we know what happened here. Uh, Japan had a similar situation after World War II in the 50s, they really started industrialized by 1990. Again, big bubble at home. Uh, we can all remember how the US markets were, you know, really pushing back and buying more Chinese uh, goods at that time or Japanese goods at that time. Now we're seeing the same thing in China. So that's, that's issue one. It's not to say the growth will stop, but it, it, they, their economy needs to recalibrate. And that's one of the reasons you're seeing China really start to court uh, some of the emerging markets in Africa and China and Southeast Asia. That's where they're gonna have to pivot to. That's gonna be challenging for them. And they've got this big real estate bubble because what they've tried to do is, is reinvest a lot at home, so that that's issue one, um, and and that's a that's a that's a big one for the over to come. The second one is fairly self evident, and there are a lot of investors I work with that will not touch China right now, especially Chinese large caps, because it is being increasingly controlled and manipulated by the Chinese government. So you put those two together, and and China, you're seeing a fall in the market, not just from a valuation standpoint, but also from a forward-looking earnings perspective. So it's both, it's value and it's it's forward earnings um, that are eroding that market right now.
0: Grant, wrote, thanks for those insights. you um, wonder wondering if there are any other trends that you think the audience might be interested in. I know you've been thinking about gold a lot and might, that might be something you want to touch on.
1: Yeah, gold's something too that you know, Gary Pollan mentioned uh, in the most recent weekend, which I encourage folks to also listen into. He's got some unique insights. Gold is a, a commodity of Gulf that I just don't pay a lot of attention to. Uh, most most uh, investors don't have an allocation to gold. But what's happening in the gold market right now is pretty interesting. There's been a tremendous amount of buying going on. That buying really started uh, around the Ukrainian invasion uh, by Russia in, uh, in early 2022, and it, it has really picked up in the last year. The central banks that are buying the most gold uh, are China, Poland, uh, I've seen Singapore, and uh, you know submerging central banks. And it's only picked up in pace recently. The other interesting thing that's going on is China has now emerged as the largest gold miner. So a lot of people think it's South Africa and South Africa, I don't think it's in the top 10 anymore. It's China's number one, Russia's number two. And that should tell you something right there. So it's something to keep an eye on this year. Um, the, the Chinese have started a, a gold physical market in Shanghai. And the gold prices in that market, thats the largest now pure physical uh, gold market in the world. The gold prices throughout 2023 were markedly higher than the prices we saw in the West. So there's a lot of buying and interest that's going on there. I saw prices upwards of a hundred dollars an ounce over the London and New York stock um, and metals spot prices at that time, particularly late summer, 2023. There's uh, a lot of, of, of market pundits who, believe that China and Russia are going to start to use gold more as a medium for exchange to potentially undermine the US dollar. A couple of people who are even suggesting that Russia could start selling their oil for gold um, to encourage you know, world trade to go back to more of a, away from the fiat currencies and more to gold. So as we think about some of the trends we've been talking about this podcast, for example, the sheer levels of debt we're running in the United States, uh, we're going to eventually have to deal with that debt. It's probably going to put some some downward pressure on our currency, especially if the government tries to monetize that debt. And uh, you've got Russia and China, potentially other players that are starting to build up their gold reserves, um, either to protect themselves against that or potentially to go on the offensive. So it's something to keep an eye on. Um, China has been a heavy buyer of gold, certainly for the last 12 months, and it t- seems to be continuing into this year.
0: Sure. One thing that we touched on when we last, uh, when we last spoke, our last podcast episode um, was about inflation. Can you I thought it'd be good to circle back on that and see like what what's been going on the, on in that space over the last few weeks?
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's uh, still early in the year to kind of get a, a real good feel of that. Um, wage inflation's still sticky. So both in Europe and in the US we're seeing wage inflation above 5%. That's going to be, uh, again, a headwind that's going to be difficult to take overall inflation down if wages are going up, because ultimately that's what inflation is, is you know more money chasing fewer goods. And if people have wage inflation of 5%, you know, you've got to expect that's going to have an impact. We saw the CPI report for December that came out a week or two ago was on the higher side of market expectations. It wasn't a particular surprise to me i I do think we're going to have moderation of inflation this year i think we can get down to that three percent level if everything goes right that said it's um it's almost like losing weight right those first few pounds you're trying to lose weight are the easiest those last few pounds are the hardest and when you've got inflationary trends that are sticky like wage inflation it makes it harder for the fed to get to that two percent level so I expect there to be some continued surprises to the upside, but there's nothing I'm seeing right now that suggests we're going back to anything we saw before. I, it's just, as, as our economists believe here at Northern Trust, I think that we're gonna see cuts probably happen in the second half of the year, not the first half, absent some some other uh, you know shock to supply or demand. The one area I would continue to urge listeners to look for are energy prices. If you have energy prices spike because of all these global uh, geopolitical crises that are sort of smoldering here and there; those are absolutely not fully baked into and factored in the market. Any one of those increasing in size or starting to grow in into a region will have an impact on uh, on prices of goods and and energy, and will also be a real challenge for the for the FOMC to 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 navigate to keep inflation low.
0: Well, Grant, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate your insights. I think we covered a lot of ground today, focusing on how the markets are getting off, to start the markets are getting off to, some of the trends that are impacting them, both uh, here in the U.S. as well as uh, around the globe. And I thought we could close maybe with a final thought um, on how you know, our listeners, folks in the audience, how their, either their organization or in their personal lives uh, can move themselves faster forward.
1: Yeah. I, look, we've, we we want to help our clients. We want to reach out. So I'd say if there's anything in this that we're talking about, uh, please reach out to us. We'd love to engage more. There's a lot more to, to cover here. And we also want to make sure that people are making full uh, uh, availability of all the resources that we have, whether it's the Weekender from Gary Pollan, the A-Suite for asset owners, as well as a lot of the reports that we put out from, uh, from our Economist team, so that's where I would really start. Um, the great thing about where I sit is we are working on behalf of all of our, of our clients. We're, we're an agent. And so we're here ultimately to help our clients navigate both the short-term and the long-run. So uh, look for more engagement from, uh, from our listeners. Thanks Grant, thanks. and thanks to our listeners. Uh, we'll see you next time on
0: Market Pulse by Faster Forward and Northern Trust Asset Services.